begin reading in verse number 1, Nehemiah chapter 8, and verse number 1. The title of our message this evening will come from verse number 10, The Joy of the Lord is Your Strength. And I want us to consider that subject this evening, The Joy of the Lord. Not only as it was experienced in the lives of these 5th century B.C. Jews, but how it can be experienced in our lives as 21st century American believers. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse number 1. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. The water gate was on the western or eastern side, pardon me, of the city of Jerusalem, south of the east gate and south of the Temple Mount. And it was down close to the Gihon Spring. Uh, we had the opportunity of seeing the Gihon Spring. And uh, there was a wall that uh, Nehemiah and Hezekiah had built around it. And then uh, under the Assyrian siege, Hezekiah had dug that uh, through bedrock, dug that 1,700 feet tunnel uh, from the Gihon Spring, underground, uh, we got to walk through it all the way down to the Pool of Siloam in the very southern tip of the city of Jerusalem. And so it's here at the water gate which accessed uh, the Gihon Spring that this uh, crowd of Jews gathers together as one man into the street or the market square at the gate. Another thing that we noticed while we were there is some of the gates that have been restored back to what they were in the Middle Ages, and in some cases even before that, you would walk into the city gate and there would be a huge opening. And so it was a place where thousands of people could gather. And so they gathered together before the water gate, and they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding. It's believed that this is referring to even children that were there. And they did this, notice, upon the first day of the seventh month. This seventh month was called Tishri, verse 3. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning. Uh, the word uh, literally idea means from the break of day, from the peak of the sun over the horizon, from the morning until midday, basically from 6 in the morning till noon, 6 hours. All right? Before the men and the women and those that could understand... And I don't think there was a church nursery either. And that's in the Hebrew. And all the year, ears of the people were attentive under the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit. Uh, the idea is not a pulpit of wood like this, but a platform of wood like a scaffolding that would get him, and as we'll see in a moment, these 13 Levites who would help him in the reading of select portions of the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, get them high enough that approximately 50,000 people could see and hear them. You can just envision, we don't know how high it was, but it had to be high for 50,000 people to be able to gather and see them. And so Ezra the scribe stood upon this pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. They, it's plural, the people made the pulpit. And beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema and Aniah and Urijah and Hilkiah and Maasiah on his right hand. And on his left hand, Padiah and Mishael and Malchiah and Heshum and Hashbadana, and Zechariah, and Meshulam. Wow, my tongue will need a break after that one. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. Uh, the idea is he unrolled the scroll, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. 
And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. He opened in prayer, if you would. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen. We agree, we agree. With lifting up their hands, and the idea is with the palms open to heaven to show their surrender to the Lord and whatever He has for them. Then they bowed their hands or heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And it literally means they bowed as one body and got on the ground with their faces to the ground. Verse number seven. Also, Jeshua and Bani and Sherebiah and Jamin and Akub and Shabbatai and Hodijah and Maasiah, Kelita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites <sighs> caused the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly, that is, uh, they distinguished between one opinion and another, and they gave the right interpretation. They gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha, that means the governor, under the Persian king, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, this day is holy unto the Lord your God. It's the idea of devoted. It has a specific purpose. And then notice what they tell them. Mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he, we don't know whether it was Ezra or Nehemiah, but one of the two of them, then he said unto them, go your way. This is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Eat the fat and drink the sweet and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy, it's devoted unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people. They were agitated over what they had just heard, read, and explained to them from the law. There was conviction, there was mourning, there was weeping, there was sorrow, saying, hold your peace, for the day is holy. Now the third time. This day is devoted, it has a specific purpose, this first day of the month, Tishri. Neither be ye grieved, and all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth, because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. And so, verse number 10, neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I want us to consider the subject tonight of the joy of the Lord. Father, help us in the remainder of our time together this evening. I pray that we would be helped and instructed just as these 5th century B.C. Jews were about the importance of the joy of the Lord in their lives, what it meant and how it strengthened them. I pray that we, too, would be helped and challenged, that we would understand better the meaning of Scripture as it relates to this subject tonight. And I pray these things in Christ's name, who is our joy. Amen. The word joy speaks of an emotion or a feeling of great pleasure or delight. In the Bible context, when we speak of joy as this emotion or feeling of great pleasure or delight, it speaks of a pleasure or delight uh, that results in a sense of well-being. Everything is good. Okay. It also speaks of a joy that is not primarily based in circumstances, though not divorced from circumstances. A New Testament illustration of this is Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas in that Philippian jail at midnight having been beating, beaten, and at midnight they're singing and praising the Lord. It was a joy that was rooted in something far more secure than their circumstances. I think about the book of Philippians, the 
letter that Paul would write to the church that was born out of his jailhouse experience. And 19 times Paul uses some form of the word joy or rejoice, and he's in prison when he's writing it. And so we understand that as he talks about his joy and as he admonishes these Philippian believers to rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, he is speaking of a joy that is in spite of circumstances, not the result of circumstances. I would also have us to remember as we think about joy being an emotion or a feeling of great pleasure or delight that results in a sense of well-being that is not primarily based on or rooted in circumstances, remember according to Galatians 5, 22 and 23, that joy is a fruit of the Spirit or a part of the fruit of the Spirit. It's something that He supernaturally produces in us when we are under His control. So joy is something that is deeper than ourselves, deeper than our circumstances, but it's something that anchors us down. It's a feeling, it's an emotion of great pleasure or delight that is the fruit of the Spirit that anchors us down. One of the preachers I read in preparation for tonight used a very simple illustration of a uh, punching bag. Do you remember those inflatable punching bags that you could blow up with air? Maybe some of you had one when you were a kid or maybe one of your children has one now that they could punch up top and it would fall over to the ground but then it would spring right back up. Punch it and over it'd go. No matter how many times you hit it, it would bounce right back up. The reason it bounced right back up is not because of anything in the head or the heart of that inflatable figure, whatever it was. It was because it was anchored down deep. And joy is that which anchors us down deep. It's not some kind of Pollyanna optimism, but it's the fruit of the Spirit that he produces in us. As Jesus taught in the Upper Room Discourse, he made it clear that our joy is directly connected to our abiding in the Word of God. That's the joy that he gives to us. As I've meditated on this statement in verse number 10, for the joy of the Lord is your strength, there are two questions I've asked this passage of Scripture, this statement that have helped me better understand it and apply it, uh, this timeless statement of Scripture. The first is this. As we think about these 5th century B.C. Jews, the time period is 444 B.C., And as we think about these Jews living uh, under Nehemiah's leadership, he's actually only been back in Jerusalem a short time. We'll see that in a moment. He says to them, or Ezra says to them, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The first question that I ask this statement in in order to better understand is why did they need strength? Why was he telling them something that was the key to or the answer to or the supply for their need of strength? Well, several thoughts here. Why did they need strength? Why did he say the joy of the Lord is your strength in contrast to the mourning and the weeping that they had just been doing? It's not that there's not a place for mourning and weeping and sorrow. And we'll see that. And as you read the book of Nehemiah, you understand the importance of it. But it's not always the answer. And here Nehemiah says this need of strength that you have, the answer is not in mourning and weeping. The answer is in the joy of the Lord. So why did they need strength? Well, if you notice in chapter number 8 and in verse number 1, the Bible tells us that this gathering took place 
on the first day of the month. Pardon me, verse number two. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. Now, keep your hand there in chapter number eight and then flip back over to chapter number six and verse number 15. Chapter number six and verse number 15. So the wall was finished in the 20 and fifth day of the month Elul, in 50 and two days. You remember that Nehemiah in 444 BC had come back under a commission from the king of Persia to rebuild the walls. God's good hand had been on him. The king of Persia had given him permission to come back. He comes back because he had heard that the walls were broken down, the gates were burned with fire, and God burdened his heart. He began to pray. God worked everything out through the king of Persia's heart and sent Nehemiah back. Nehemiah came back. He didn't tell a lot of people at the first what his mission or his purpose was. He even at nighttime would go out and make survey trips to assess the damage, how bad it was. And then he would gather all of the people of Jerusalem and the people of the outskirts together and tell them, we are going to rebuild these walls. And in 52 days, they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. Historians tell us that it was two and a half miles of walls that they rebuilt in 52 days. Averaging 12 to 18 feet thick and 40 feet high. Don't you imagine after 52 days of that, these people were tired? Tired. And so there was physical exhaustion that they were experiencing. As a matter of fact, remember the Bible tells us that they were so wrapped up in this task that they would not change clothes except to take a bath, and then they'd put the same clothes back on. Plus, it was easy to identify them because they were wearing the same thing for 52 days. For 52 days, they were physically exhausted as they worked to rebuild the walls, and they needed strength. They needed refreshed. Remember some of the circumstances that surrounded the rebuilding of the walls. There was also mental exhaustion that they had experienced because of enemies, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem. Remember those names from reading the book of Nehemiah. There was mental exhaustion as they labored with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other, always looking over their shoulder and waiting for a trumpet to sound that the enemy was approaching. So there was mental exhaustion, physical exhaustion. Why did they need strength? I believe there was emotional exhaustion too. It was 94 years before, in 538 B.C., that a man by the name of Zerubbabel had led the first contingency of Jews back from the captivity, the Babylonian captivity. Around 50,000 people had come back. They had started to build the temple, but had gotten stopped. And it would be 516, 22 years after they actually came back before the temple would be completed. But for 94 years, these Jews, now two to three generations of them that had lived there, had lived in a city that did not have walls. You want to talk about vulnerability in that time. We don't think much of it today. But we toured city after city after city after city And ruin after ruin after ruin in Israel were the thing that determined the strength and the fortitude and the longevity of a city was its good walls. There's an illustration used in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 25 and verse number 28. A man who has no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. A city without walls was vulnerable. 
And for people living in that city or in the proximity, there was no, no visible symbol or protection or safety for them. They were vulnerable. That would be exhausting. And so they're in need of strength because of physical exhaustion, mental exhaustion, emotional exhaustion, 94 years of vulnerability. They're nationally exhausted as well. The remnant that had come back from Babylonian captivity was a shadow of the greatness of the nation of Israel before the Babylonian captivity. A shadow. A fraction of the people that used to make up the population of the nation of Israel. The northern ten tribes were gone, scattered all over the Mideast. And only a fraction of the people of Judah and the southern tribe of Benjamin, the southern kingdom, only a fraction of those people had survived the Babylonian captivity and had come back. Comparatively, they were a national shame. Do you even remember in 516 B.C. when they finished the rebuilding of the temple 22 years after they returned? The Bible said there were mixed emotions there. The young men rejoiced because of the temple being rebuilt. But the old men wept because as they looked at the temple that had been rebuilt, they understood that it was only a fraction of what Solomon's temple had so there was discouragement, there was exhaustion, physically, mentally, emotionally, nationally. There was social exhaustion and dismay as well. There were three phases of leadership that the captivity remnant experienced when they returned. Under Zerubbabel and then under Ezra and under Nehemiah. Every one of those three phases of leadership experienced this mixed multitude of Jewish people who kept falling back into the idolatrous practices and mixed marriages with idolatrous worshiping people, the, the same practices that had got them into the trouble of the captivity in the first place. And so now, you, you would think 70 years would teach them the lesson. But they're constantly dealing with people who are slipping back into those idolatrous practices. Both Ezra and Nehemiah had to deal with mixed marriages. Jewish men marrying uh, Canaanite women, strictly forbidden by God's word. Why? Because they understood the importance of preserving the seed line of Messiah. Okay. And so there's also numerical exhaustion and fatigue. They're a fraction of what they were. Later on the book of Nehemiah, in order to preserve the city of Jerusalem, now that they got these walls built, how are we going to defend this city? Remember, they drew lots, and one in ten people that lived outside the city came to live in the city. All these questions, these weaknesses, these vulnerabilities. And that was looking back. But they're facing forward. How are we going to preserve the city? How are we going to preserve the remnant? How are we going to protect our prospect for the future? We're still living in hope of the Messiah coming, but things don't look very good right now. We're weak, we're a fraction of what we used to be. Yes, we've got these walls rebuilt, but now how are we going to defend this city? At the time that this took place, they're under Persian domination. Then the Greeks would conquer the Persians and the Jews would be under Greek domination. And then the Greeks would be dispersed by Alexander the Great's four generals and Syrians would dominate that area. And then the Romans would dominate. They're also about to go into what we call as Bible students the 400 silent years. 
And Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the last prophets of the Old Testament, their voices will go silent. And for 400 years, there will be no voice of prophecy. The past had drained these Jews, and the future was daunting. And then they get these walls built and to top things off. And I love their heart, and we need to model their heart. To top the situation off, even in the weak, vulnerable position that they're in, though they've just gotten these walls rebuilt in 52 days, with wonderful intention and in an unprecedented act, they said, Ezra, get the book. I love it. Ezra, bring the law. The Bible says that some 50,000 people gathered as one man in the square at the water gate on the east side of the city, the southeast side of the city, because that's the spot that would contain everybody. Ezra is summoned to bring the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. They build a platform for him to stand on. They gather in this square. A number of Bible commentators have said that it was significant that they gathered at the water gate that accessed the Gihon Spring because the Bible in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, one of the symbols that pictures the Bible is water. It satisfies thirst. It cleanses from defilement. And then for five to six hours, and this is just the first of several times where they'll stand for hours. Later on, for a quarter of the day, they'll stand. And here's the amazing thing. You talk about unprecedented. As you study in particular the Old Testament revivals, it was generally the result of a king or a prophet leading the way. In this case, it was unprecedented because it wasn't a prophet or a king instituting or instigating a revival. It was 50,000 people who said, we need the word, get the book. And read to us for five to six hours and then explain to us what it means so that we can restore a relationship with the Lord. Their initial response, Ezra gets up on the platform, unrolls the book, Leads in prayer, the people say, Amen, Amen. They lift their hands with palms open to heaven to symbolize their submission. Then they bow their heads and their faces clear to the ground. And then they stand back up and for five to six hours, they listen to portions of the Old Testament get read. Now, I know there are some exciting portions of the first five books of the Bible, but there are some other not-so-exciting portions. It's all of it, the inspired Word of God. But by some of their responses, it indicates that they had some of the less exciting portions read to them and explained to. Their initial response was this excitement, but then something unexpected happened. 50,000 people as one man began mourning and weeping and sorrowing and grieving. Why? I believe that as they heard the Old Testament law read they were overwhelmed, maybe with this spirit or attitude. We are so far behind. Look at how far off track we are. Is there even any way for us to get back right with, right with God like the former days? Is it even worth it? Is there any hope for us? Look around at our record, at our tendency. Is this even worth it? We're a fraction of what we used to be. We were so far removed from God and then we're still looking around us and we see the tendency of some of us to slip back into the idolatry and the mixed marriages. Is this even worth it? 
And they begin mourning and weeping and grieving and sorrowing. And then, whether it was Ezra or Nehemiah, something unique happens. Now, i got to tell you, it's a wonderful thing. It's an encouraging thing to see people break and get right with God and to repent, to deal with sin. We talked about that this morning. It's an encouraging thing. It's a challenging thing. It is a motivating thing when you see someone else get right with God to even examine your own life to make sure you're right with God. But something fascinating happens here. And that is Ezra and Nehemiah say, stop your crying. Stop your mourning. Stop your weeping. Stop your grieving. Neither be sorry, neither be grieved. Go your way. Eat the fat. Drink the sweet. Basically, let's have a celebration for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The strength that you need right now is not going to come from mourning and weeping. The strength that you need is going to come from the joy of the Lord. So I want to answer a second question. Not only why did they need strength, but number two, why is the joy of the Lord, or what is the joy of the Lord, which is their strength? What is the joy of the Lord? If the joy of the Lord is their strength, then it behooves us to answer the question, what is the joy of the Lord? And if it helped them 2,500 years ago, is there help here for you and for me? Remember, we defined joy as the delight or the pleasure which comes from or is rooted in the Lord. It's associated with the Lord versus lesser or counterfeit forms of joy. This world has counterfeit forms of joy, doesn't it? Things that may give us a quick fix, but they're not deep and abiding that actually allow us to spring back up when the circumstances of life knock us down. These Jews, under Nehemiah's and Ezra's direction, were given an intentional focus, directed towards an an intentional focus on several objects that would move them to joy so that they could find the strength that they needed. The first joy or delight as they sought the joy of the Lord that would be their strength is this, a delight or a joy in God's forgiveness. They were right to mourn at different times, to weep, to deal with their sin. But I think about delighting in God's forgiveness. Uh, Look, if you would, over chapter 9 and verse number 17. Chapter 9 and verse number 17. This is in a later gathering that they had. But this communicates their attitude, their appreciation. Notice what is said, but thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and forsookest them not. Talking about their forefathers in the wilderness. Delight in God's forgiveness. How even when they had failed, even when they had sinned, when they had come back to the Lord, he had always forgiven them. He is a God that is ready to pardon, ready to forgive. Joy is hard, but joy is commanded. But it helps me to remember that it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's not something I produce. It's something the Spirit of God produces in me. And what the Spirit of God will do to produce the fruit of joy in our lives is He will turn our minds back to the forgiveness that we've experienced. He'll remind us of our position In the Lord. Is that not what Paul talks about in Romans chapter number 8? That the spirit that is within us stirs us to cry, Abba, Father, and reminds us that we're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. 
I've been forgiven. I've been placed in the family of God. As far as these Jews go, they're looking at their circumstances right where they are, and it was discouraging. And yet, the direction of God and the leadership of Nehemiah and Ezra would have them to recognize it's a miracle and a testimony to the forgiveness of God that any of you are even here where you are. With what they had experienced through the two captivities, the Assyrian captivity of 722 and the Babylonian captivity of 605, 596, and 586, the nation should have been wiped out. But the fact that any of them are there is a testimony that their God, our God, is a God who forgives, a God who restores, and a God who keeps his promises. And so the joy of the Lord comes from delighting in God's forgiveness. I read of two prisoners who were pardoned in the ancient times by their king. And they were given the statement of their pardon in a, in a piece of parchment, a scrolled up parchment. They opened them up and one just kept his parchment open and he kept reading and he was just rejoicing. We're free, we're free, we're free. The crimes that we had committed, they've been forgiven. We've been pardoned by the king. The other guy kept his scroll rolled up, his parchment rolled up and he's like, we just don't deserve this. I can't believe this. We do not deserve this. We deserve to pay for our crimes. Think about how awful it was what we did. And the other guy kept saying, yeah, but we've been forgiven. And really, that describes two different categories of Christians. Those, those who keep the pardon opened and keep reminding themselves of who they are in Jesus in spite of what they've done in the past and remind themselves of the rich and deep and full forgiveness of God, forgiveness of God those are the ones who manifest the joy of the Lord. When we get our eyes on circumstances or when we look to other uh, things to be the source of our joy, we're going to find that it's a very fickle, counterfeit form of joy. Delight in God's forgiveness. But number two, an intentional focus moves us to delight or joy and an intentional focus on not only delighting in God's forgiveness, but delighting in God's footsteps. So after they've had this great gathering, and for half of the day... Ezra has read the scripture. The Levites have helped to explain it. Then they send everybody home. Eat the fat. Drink the sweet. Go your way. Give portions to those that have not. Share what you have. Be generous with other people. Have a celebration. Then verse number 13. And on the second day, we're gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priests and the Levites, unto Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month, and that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth unto the mount, fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of thick trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went forth and brought them and made themselves booths, every one upon the roof of his house and their courts and the courts of the house of God and in the street of the water gate and in the streets of the street of the gate of Ephraim. That is on the west side, directly opposite of the water gate, the west side of the city. And all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths. So here's what happened. They come back the second day. Ezra teaches more. These are the fathers of all the families come back. The men gather and say, now teach us and explain to us more so we can understand better how to obey. 
So they come back and they find the instruction that God gives in regards to the third major feast or pilgrim feast of the Jewish year, the Feast of Tabernacles. We've talked about this the last several weeks. It's uh, recorded in John chapter number 7, the Feast of Tabernacles, when the Jews would all move out of their houses and they would build with sticks and with, with tarps. They would build these tents and they would camp out for seven days and eat and sleep in these tents as a reminder of the 40-year wilderness wandering when they, their forefathers lived in tents and God cared for them. He fed them. He made sure that the shoes of their feet didn't wear out and God took care of them for 40 years. And the Feast of Tabernacles was a commemoration of that. And so they understand this is what we're supposed to do and they determined to obey. Can I tell you that joy comes from obedience? Joy comes from obedience. Jesus said in the Upper Room Discourse, John chapter 13 In verse number 17, after he had just modeled servanthood to his disciples by washing their feet, he said this to them. He said, if you know these things, the understood idea is, that's good. If you know these things, but happy are ye if ye do them. There's no happiness in knowledge. There's no joy in knowledge. In fact, a Christian who has knowledge who isn't obedient is miserable. But it's when I take knowledge that I have and I put it into practice and obedience that joy comes. James, the half-brother of the Lord, would affirm this. Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful here but a doer of the work, this man shall be what? Blessed in his deed or his doing. It's the idea of flourishing. He's going to know the good life and God's blessing as he obeys. Psalm chapter number one, blessed, flourishing is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sitteth, or sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law doth he meditate day and night. Psalm 119, verses one and two, blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. They don't just know, but they do. I read of two wives who were at a laundromat doing their family's laundry. And both of them happened to be mending a set of their husband's trousers. The first wife, as she mended her husband's trousers, complained about how miserable life was. She goes, everything goes wrong for my husband at work. He gets nothing good at work. He's miserable when he comes home at night. We go to church and church is boring There's nothing there for us. And she just went on and on complaining about how miserable their life was. The second wife, she's mending her husband's pants. And as she's mending, she's saying, you know what? My husband has some tough times at work, but he just looks to to be a blessing to others and to serve others that are there and to be a good testimony for the Lord. And you know what? There are rough days that he has. There are days that he comes home exhausted. But you know what? He's having an impact at work. And boy, we have the joy of the Lord in our home. And church is just a refreshment to us when we go. The music and the preaching and the teaching, it's all a blessing. As you step back from the picture, you notice that the first lady is mending the seat of her husband's pants. The other lady is mending the knees of her husband's pants. Pray and then get up and get going. Because delight in God's footsteps is the joy of the Lord that gives us the strength that we need. Delight number three 
The joy of the Lord is found in delight in God's faithfulness. We've already read a little bit of chapter 9, verse number 17. Notice verse number 18. This is, again, as they're looking back on and celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles and recalling God's faithfulness. So God's forgiveness, and then God's footsteps, and then delighting in God's faithfulness. Verse number 18, Yea, when they had made them a molten calf, chapter 9, verse number 18, and said, This is thy God that brought thee up out of Egypt and had wrought great provocations, yet thou in thy manifold mercies forsookest them not in the wilderness." The pillar of the cloud departed not from them by day to lead them in the way. Neither the pillar of fire by night to show them light, the way they were, wherein they should go. Verse number 20, thou gavest also thy good spirit to instruct them and withheldest not thy manna from their mouth and gavest them water for their thirst. Yea, 40 years didst thou sustain them in the wilderness so that they lacked nothing. Their clothes waxed not old and their feet swelled not. When we focus intentionally on the faithfulness of God, it produces and provides for us the joy of the Lord that gives the strength that we need. Here they are celebrating in obedience to the Lord the Feast of Tabernacles, which intentionally focuses them on the faithfulness of God even when they didn't deserve it. God is faithful. Forty years of his care that he had given The sun is always shining. Always. There's no dark side to the sun. It's always providing its warmth. It's always providing its light. It's always providing its goodness. It's only when the half of the earth turns its face away from the sun that it experiences darkness. When we keep our face on the sun, will experience the warmth and the light and the goodness of our God. He is always faithful. He is always good. And it is an intentional focus on that that generates joy, deep abiding joy in our lives, which gives us the strength that we need. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. My mom is here tonight. My dad is celebrating. He began preaching when he was a 15, 16-year-old boy for over 50 years. My dad and mom have faithfully served the Lord, and dad has preached. And I have to tell you, there have been some rough patches, but I have never once heard or seen my parents question the faithfulness of God. I've never once... Now, they're not perfect. Where's my mom? She's right there. Mom, you're not perfect. You agree with that? She agrees with it. My dad's not perfect. If my dad were standing here, he would tell you he's not perfect. There have been some rough patches and some rough days. But you know, I can look back on the faithfulness of God's provision, God's plan. I think about different ministries. I think about struggles. And yet, the earth keeping its face toward the sun so delight in the faithfulness of God leads us into the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Fourthly and finally, look with me, if you would, back in chapter number 8 and verse number 10. Then he said unto them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions unto them 
For whom nothing is prepared for this day is holy. It's devoted to the Lord. Later on, he'll repeat this. Oh, they go their way to eat, to drink, and to send portions, and to make great mirth. Eat the fat. Number four, you enter into the joy of the Lord when you delight not only in God's forgiveness, God's footsteps, God's faithfulness, but as we look at these 5th century B.C. Jews, you enter into the joy of the Lord, which is going to give you the strength that you need when you delight in God's festivities. We have a wonderful Italian chef in our midst. And he has a, a favorite line. I've heard him say it many times. And I agree wholeheartedly. He says this, fat is flavor and flavor is good. <laughs> fat is flavor and flavor is good. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Eat the fat, drink the sweet. It's, it just strikes me. It's the first day of Tishri. Now, now here's the interesting thing, okay? Really, there's the, the first feast of the year, Passover, for the Jews, okay? That, that the feast of Passover, there was affliction and mourning. But it was based on the Egyptian bondage. But it culminated in the fact God has delivered us from bondage. They would eat the unleavened bread and eat the bitter herbs... They would do so as a, as a token of, hey, we were under oppression. We had to get out of here fast. But the Feast of Weeks or in-gatherings or harvest was a time of rejoicing. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 16, these three major feasts. The second major feast of the year was the Feast of Weeks or in-gatherings. And it was a feast where they celebrated the provision of God in harvest. And then the third major pilgrimage feast was this Feast of Tabernacles where they commemorated God's care for them in the wilderness and they were to very intentionally rejoice in the Feast of Weeks and in the Feast of Tabernacles. Matter of fact, you go back to Deuteronomy 16 and you'll look in the basic instructions given for both of those feasts and the word rejoice is used a couple of times in both passages. In other words, God planned into the Jewish calendar intentional times of rejoicing. Whether they felt like it or not. And when they mourned and wept at an inappropriate time, Nehemiah said, stop it. That gets me. You know, it's interesting. So the first day of the month, or the first day of Tishri, began the Feast of Trumpets which was to gather people together in preparation for the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement began on the 10th, and that day was specifically associated with some time of affliction, afflicting their souls, repenting of sin. But then after the Day of Atonement was over, on the 15th day of the month, Tishri, the seventh month, was the Feast of Tabernacles, and it was a time of rejoicing. Essentially what Nehemiah or Ezra, whichever one said this, is saying is, there's a time and a place for that, but it's not now. What you need is strength, and that strength is going to come through the joy of the Lord, not through mourning and weeping right now. Now, some of the, I'm being sarcastic here. My tongue is firmly planted in my cheek. Some more righteous Christians might say, but times of rejoicing, that can't be spiritual. <laughs> Wrong answer. 
God specifically told his people and scheduled into their calendar times of rejoicing. And he said, eat the fat, drink the sweet, have a celebration. I keep wanting to have the word party slip out, but I wouldn't dare use it because of its negative connotation. Celebrate, rejoice in God's faithfulness and God's forgiveness in the joy that comes as you follow his footsteps and his blessing comes on your life. Delight in God's festivities, food and feasting, times of fellowship, sharing with others. I think we underestimate the power of eating together. Do you know covenants were sealed in the Old Testament by having a meal together? And you think about the joy that is associated with good food. A lady that I love very dearly used to teach young women that we don't eat for enjoyment, we eat for survival. I love her dearly, but she's wrong. If we only eat for survival, then why are we going to eat in the millennial kingdom when we have a glorified body and don't need to eat in order to survive? Just asking for a friend. <laughs> okay. Hey, isn't it amazing? God created us, body, soul, and spirit, mind, emotions, and will, and this body that he gave to us is full of this nervous system that has thousands of sensor receptors that like good things. They like the taste of good things. They like the feel. These sensors like the feel. I like the feel. The sense of. There's joy that comes. And listen, God made us to enjoy that kind of thing. Okay. So delight in God's festivities. <laughs> I got to finish, but how many of you ever heard of Billy Kelly before? Billy Kelly played the moonshiner on um, Sheffy. Great big heavy man. And he made no bones about the fact he enjoyed eating. Now, let me just say this. Gluttony is sin. Whoever it is. Okay. But Billy Kelly was asked one time if he could pick how he wanted to die, how would it be? And he said with a cat head biscuit in both hands, jumping into a swimming pool full of sausage gravy. <laughs> just for the record, biscuits and sausage gravy is one of my favorite foods. I love it. But joy... At the end of the month, this month, Tishri, they'll dedicate the walls of Jerusalem. And all those 50,000 people will gather once again at the southern tip of the city of Jerusalem. They'll, under leadership, they'll get up on the top of the walls and they'll walk from the south and then one around, one around the west side, half of the people, and the other half around the east side. And they'll converge at the north at Temple Mount on the wall surrounding the temple and they will rejoice so loudly that the sound of their rejoicing will be heard by all the people, all the Canaanites in the surrounding region. The importance of delighting in God's festivities. I think it's important for us to ask ourselves every once in a while, am I too serious? Am I too serious? If you're, if you're too serious... To obey God's injunction of intentionally planned times of rejoicing in your life, you're too serious. 
I'm going to close with this and be done. Hope nobody's mad. I'm preaching on rejoicing, so don't be mad. In the Napoleonic Wars, in the first 15 years, from 1803 to 1815, the Napoleonic Wars, when Napoleon had built his mighty war machine and was seeking to conquer most of Europe, one of his best generals, a French man by the name of André Messina, with 18,000 troops, converged on a city in Austria. The town council of this city in Austria was compelled to surrender. They were seriously thinking about surrendering because they knew they didn't have the ability to withstand an attack by 18,000 crack French troops. So as they were wrestling with the decision, do we surrender, do we not surrender, when should we surrender, the preacher of the main church in town came to them and he said, listen, it's Easter. If we're going to surrender, let's wait till later, but let's go ahead and celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus today. We can surrender tomorrow, but let's celebrate the resurrection today. The town council reluctantly agreed, and so the preacher gave the word and set all of the bells in all of the churches in this city in Austria to ring. And you can imagine the noise, the sound of all of them ringing, some of them ringing one tune, some ringing another tune, tune as, they, as they did every year celebrated the fact that there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. They woke up the next morning, and where those 18,000 French troops had been, they had vanished. They were gone. They were puzzled, and they wouldn't find out for some time, but later on they would find out the reason that the French troops under General Andre Messina's leadership left is because when they heard the bells ringing... They thought it was the city rejoicing that Australian troops had showed up to defend the city and they decided they didn't want to fight and left. But in truth, the bells were ringing to celebrate that the tomb in Jerusalem is empty. Intentional, even in the face of bad circumstances, an intentional choice to rejoice to celebrate these realities upon which we anchor our lives. The tomb is empty. The future is secure. An intentional choice to rejoice in the face even of difficult circumstances, get this, wins the battle every day. It defeats the enemy of doubt. It defeats the enemy of discouragement. I'm not saying discouragement doesn't come, but joy overcomes discouragement. So let us delight in God's festivities, delight in his faithfulness, delight in his footsteps, and delight in his forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for how you challenged my heart through this message this evening. Lord, I pray that you'd help me to be more intentional in my rejoicing, understanding, believing what the scripture says, that the joy of the Lord is our strength. I pray that whatever burdens may be borne here tonight, we would understand that the way to overcome those burdens is to exercise the joy of the Lord, delighting in our forgiveness and following you in your faithfulness 
and in intentional times of joy in our lives. And I pray these things in Christ's name, doing a work in our hearts. Amen and amen.